The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Pray with me. Almighty God, You are the only one who was and who is and who is to come. You are the Ancient of Days, sovereign over all that is, creator of everything. You have no beginning and no end. And we are flowers quickly fading. Our lives may stretch for a few days or years or decades, but they are nothing to you. You are eternal. Father, I pray that this morning you would come and by the power of your Spirit inhabiting this place, lay that to our hearts. We are small with short lives. And you are great, vast, immense, and amazingly, you have come to join us to you. There is no way on earth that should be that you should even care. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you even notice him and care about him? But you do. Not because of who we are, what we've done, but because of yourself. We bless your name for that. And I pray, would you help us today to think about that and to understand it a little bit and to understand our place and response. Lord, that those realities, those truths mean, mean many things for us. And would you make some of them clear this morning? I am a fallen, finite, frail man of flesh. So would you take my frail, fallen, fleshly words and put spirit power in them and teach us and make us wise. If you would do that, Lord, we would acknowledge it as the work of God only. That's what we ask for, the work of God. Make something real and significant and life-changing happen here this morning, I pray. Use your Scriptures filled with the power of your Holy Spirit to exalt yourself and your Son and build your church. And it is in His name that I pray. Amen. The book of Ecclesiastes is among the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Which is to say it's among those books in the Old Testament that are, that are highly concerned with the idea of wisdom, which is not a simple collection of facts or information. It's not just book knowledge in that sense. Wisdom, biblically speaking, is the proper use of information and knowledge. 
It's, it's taking truth and employing it so as to live a life that is profitable. A life that is good and full from the final perspective, that is, from God's perspective. The perspective to which we all must answer one day. So biblically speaking, a person can be wise, can take the truth of God and have it run through their lives so that they spend their short time here on earth profitably. A person can be wise without ever stepping foot in a formal classroom. And conversely, a person can have a PhD and be a fool. The opposite of wisdom. And in fact, in our fallenness, we each are all born foolish. And we progress through life. God must give His truth to us. He must reveal it. And God must work by grace to move that truth into us, to make us wise. It's the work of God. And the wisdom literature is a, is a piece of that work. It's His truth given to us that by His Spirit He can drive into us. Shows us the path of wisdom urged and displayed and described. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. And incidentally, if you look just at the title of the book, you can see the word ecclesia in the beginning. This, the title is Greek, though it's a, a book in the Hebrew Old Testament. It's a Greek title from when the Hebrew was translated into Greek before Christ. We talked about this word some weeks ago in Deuteronomy. The word shows up there in Hebrew. It just means assembly. So the title of this book is The Assembler, if you will. Chapter 1, verse 1 has a footnote. talks about maybe the teacher or the collector or the convener. It's somebody who is gathering people around, so to speak, and saying, Here, come here. I want to teach you some things. And he brings out his life's experiences and his griefs and his confusions and his ponderings. And that word pondering is a pretty fair summary of this whole book. This is a book about reflecting and considering. Pondering, in, in the writer's words, life here under heaven, life under the sun. The assembler has lived and he has thought and he has reached some conclusions and he wants to tell us some things. This is an awesome book. If you are not familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, I would encourage you, read it. Become familiar with it. It's a sobering book. It can't stand on its own. It needs the rest of the context of Scripture wrapped around it to shape it properly for us. And we'll see that at several points today. It, it needs a context. But in that context, the book of Ecclesiastes is remarkable. There is much wisdom here for us. And today we're going to consider wisdom in connection to mourning. M-O-U-R. Mourning death. What it teaches us about how to live life. And I'm going to say this up front. There are obvious reasons that I've been drawn to preach this passage this week, but this is not going to be about me and my family. This is about all of us. It's God's Word to all of us. So let me read the passage, Ecclesiastes 7. Verses 1 to 14, and then I'm going to pass back through to make sure we understand it before making a couple of observations. Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 to 14. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. 
It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider... God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. The word of the Lord. This particular passage has a lot in common with the whole of the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes, but it's presented in a slightly different format. Much of the rest of the book is a first person sort of recounting of things. And this is a collection of strung together proverbs. Maybe it's even typed up differently in your in your Bible. They're strung together. They're connected in thought and with some particular words. Notice the repetition of the word better. Stated or implied in most of the verses. Showing us that throughout this passage, there's a constant sta- stance of comparison going on. Not always comparing the same two things, but, but constantly comparing this to that and showing that one of these things is the better. And therefore, the thing that we are to desire and to seek after. Which connects in nicely to the theme of wisdom. Another theme here. Repeated numerous times as he urges us towards wisdom, which, as verse 11 says, is good with an inheritance. Both wisdom and money are good things, he says. Verse 12, but wisdom or knowledge, because he's stating that in parallel, he does not mean book knowledge, he means Knowledge, as in wisdom, stating it a different way. The advantage of knowledge or wisdom is that it can preserve your life. Money alone can't do that. But wisdom can preserve your life, as in keep it from rotting. Keep it good. People from the outside would look at you and say, that, that's a solid, good, reputable life. You develop a good name, as verse 1 says. But also it preserves life for you on the inside. You'd have a life that is full and profitable. That's what wisdom is about. And the rest of the passage tells us where we can find it and what it looks like and what can come from it. Verses 1 to 4 direct our attention towards death. 
is a place to find wisdom for life. Verse 1 begins, the second half of verse 1, better is the day of death than the day of birth. And better is the place of mourning. And better is sorrow. That's the one half of the comparison laid out in the first several verses. It's, it's contrary to birth and feasting and laughter and mirth. One side is better than the other. Not, careful, not that God is against laughter. Not that God is morose and walks around with a perpetual grimace, and if you're really holy, you will too. That This is where the rest of the context of the Scripture comes in. We know that, th- think about this. God is perfect. He is good. He is holy. He knows all things. God does all that He pleases. God knows the end in which He accomplishes all of His perfect will. He is not frustrated. He is infinitely happy. He is a pleased and happy and joyful God. And much of the rest of the Scripture, much of the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes, even this passage itself, reveals that He wants us to be glad too. So God is not against happiness and, and pleasure. He is against a particular kind of merriment. Verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, and the heart of the fool is in the house of mirth. What's bad is foolish feasting, foolish laughter, foolish party, filled with the songs of fools. Verse 6 says, the laughter of fools is vanity, a common word in this book. Vanity meaning meaninglessness. Emptiness, pointlessness, uselessness. Like the crackling of thorns under a pot. Do you get that analogy? Maybe not, but have you ever burned pine needles? A couple years ago, I saved my Christmas tree. And it dried out, and I cut the limbs off, and I was going to use them as kindling. You put a, a limb of Christmas tree, dried Christmas tree needles on a fire, what do you get? A conflagration for about 15 seconds. Whoosh! And then nothing. If you, if you light that up and put a pot of stew on top of that, what happens? Nothing. It barely warms the metal on the outside. It sure doesn't cook the stew. Now, if you were to arrive in the moment of lighting, you would think, that is an impressive fire. Wow! But if you wait 15 seconds and try to eat the stew, meaningless. Emptiness, that was useless. Because there's not enough in it to provide any kind of heat. You can't sustain any cooking. You can't produce any change with the burning of needles or thorns. That kind of laughter, that kind of apparent happiness is empty. Sorrow, verse 3, of the sort you can find in the house of mourning can be infinitely better because it can produce a genuine, thoughtful wisdom which will lead to true gladness of heart. And so wisdom and gladness then become the focus in the next section. To hear the rebuke of the wise, to be taught by the wise is good. And here's some of what the wise would say. 
So they step out of the house of mourning to teach us. Verses 7 to 10, they would instruct us in these various ways. Here, verse 7, he warns against oppression. Or as the NIV says, extortion. Avoid taking a bribe in exchange for oppressing injustice. Not, not because, notice this, because that would hurt the oppressed one. And not because it's contrary to God's law, though that's true. Oppression hurts the people who are oppressed. God's against it. We've seen that, you know, a dozen times in Deuteronomy. That's all true. That's not the point here. You don't want to take a bribe because it will destroy you. Your own soul. He's trying to instruct you how to live wisely so as what will come out of you is a life that is full and good. As the NIV says, it will turn a wise man into a fool. It will drive you mad. You lose touch with what's actually good and what's actually bad. In your own heart, you'll be haunted as you see the wrong that you've done and it burdens you. You'll become a tool to somebody else. As they, they own you as they bribe you. It's all bad, so avoid it. And verse 8, be patient and humble. Wait to see how things turn out in the end. It's not how you start, it's how or if you finish. It's better to see the end of things than just the beginning, which is hard. It's hard to be patient, isn't it, when things aren't going your way, when things aren't working out like you planned them, when people aren't cooperating and they're messing up your agenda. The proud person steps up and seizes control and works so as to drive his or her goal. See how he sets patience opposite pride? It's not patience opposite impatience. It's patience opposite haughtiness, pride. What's happening if you're looking at impatience in your life? You're seeing pride. Think about that. A desire to stand up and change things according to your desires on your timetable. Now, the rest of the scripture, the context. This is wisdom literature. We always in wisdom literature need to keep this thing in mind that, that it requires a context. Think about other sorts of wise sayings or little proverbs, not, not biblical ones, but think of this. The early bird gets the worm. There's some truth in that, of course. What, what's it trying to say? Get after things. Get there. Do it. Except that haste makes waste. It means slow down. Think it through. Which is it? Both. You need a context. The wise person knows which ones apply where. So is there anything else in the Bible that would ever say, get up and act, move. Don't wait. Don't be patient. Don't sit back, but step forward. Of course there is. Yes, there is. But the point is that often This writer in this piece of God's Word wants to point out to us often what drives you to stand up and act in impatience is pride. I developed pretty early in my life, fifth grade, sixth grade, I had a basketball coach who wrote on the the blackboard, if it's meant to be, it's up to me. And I see the point in that. I bought a little plaque and put it on my dresser and developed that mind. If it's meant to be, it's up to me. 
in a context that works. But so often, what that does is that inspires me and us to take things into our hands and believe, actually, that if it is meant to be, I must do it. And this writer says, fresh out of the house of mourning, sit down. Sit down, frail man. Sit down. You're so worked up and anxious and driven. Be patient and humble. You're not the one who's in charge. It's not up to you. Be patient and wait. And while you're doing that, be peaceful. Verse 9. Be not quick to anger because it's going to get into you and it'll lodge inside of you like it will in a fool. Connects very nicely to impatience and pride. Anger is a desire thwarted. And when I see something not going my way in my timetable and I want to get up and make it happen, anger so often accompanies that. Proud impatience and anger. Is that going to produce a good life? No, it produces angst and frustration, and let alone the fact that other people probably don't like you. Anger rarely wins friends and influences people, and it destroys your own soul too. Don't be quick to anger. Instead, verse 10, wisdom within is contentment with what is. Not constantly thinking about all the good old days, or conversely, what could be, but just says, I'm going to rest with what is. Wisdom is valuable. It preserves your life. It creates space for you, verses 13 and 14, to give attention to God. Notice the command in 13 and 14 twice. Consider. Think about. Ponder this. Consider the work of God. And specifically consider how high and unchangeable and unsearchable are His ways. He makes crooked and none can straighten. He makes the day of prosperity and the day of adversity. And He doesn't tell you which one is coming next. So as to keep you in your place. You see that in verse 14. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. There's intention in that. So that man may not find out anything. We don't control. We don't make the circumstances of life. We don't even know about them until they come. We are mortal flesh. And He alone is God. Consider that, says the teacher. That's the passage. I think this is an awesome passage, and I think the whole book is awesome. I want to make two observations, but I plead with you, keep reading and keep meditating. The problem with preaching on wisdom literature is that you can't exhaust it in 40 minutes. You could read it again and again and again. So I plead with you, read this again and again. Read this book Think about it. Consider it. Ponder it. 
But that being said, I'm going to make two observations and then tie them together at the end. I think these are, are two points, at least two points, that come out of this passage. We begin with the first observation. God wants you to know. God wants you to know He has given each of us one brief life to live. One. He has given to you, to me, to the person sitting next to you, to your children, to your parents, to your spouse, one life. Only one. And it will soon be over. This comes through very clearly in the first half of the passage. The second half of verse 1, better that you experience the day of death. Verse 2, better that you go to the house of mourning on the day of death. Better that you go there than to go to a party. Why? For, reasoning again, for this, that is death, is the end of all mankind. We all, every single one of us, we all are going to die. Well, no kidding. Tell me something I didn't already know. No, no, no. He is telling you something you don't already know. You know it. You don't know it. None of us do. Which is why He's telling us that it is better that we go look at it. That we go see it and be confronted by it. You don't need to go celebrate a birth. We don't need to be confronted with and reminded of the reality of life. We readily assume the reality of life by simple fact that we are alive. And think we're going to live forever. Especially in our culture today, we work very hard to insulate ourselves from death. We don't even use the word death or the verb to die. We load in euphemism after euphemism. He passed away, left us, we suffered a loss. The host of other crass references. There is no fountain of immortality, but we do our best to convince ourselves that there is. And we push off even thinking about death. Despite the cold hard fact that it is the end of all mankind. We don't need another party. We need to go to the house of mourning to be brought face to face with humanity's 100% mortality rate and lay this fact to heart while we are still living. This is the end of all mankind. The living will lay it to heart. Take it in. Root it in here. becomes unavoidable when you see right before you the body. In time, that will be you. And it will be me. All of us. Lay it to heart. It is better to go with the wise to the house of mourning. God wants you to go there. He urges you to go there so that He may tell you this. I have given you one brief life to live. And after that, I have appointed that you will die and face the judgment. Men and women, boys and girls, 
This is true of you. And while you cannot literally just decide to go off to a house of mourning, if you did that and it wasn't somebody that you knew, it would create an awkward situation. You can, and the point is that you are expected to decide to contemplate, to give thought to, to reflect on this reality. So maybe you do this. Look at old things. Look at old buildings or old furniture or old photographs and actually look at them. Where are their makers and where are their builders and where are the people in those pictures? All black and white, as was the custom frowning. You realize they smiled. They lived in color just like us. They did things, they acted, they had dreams, they aspired, they accomplished, they built, they collected, and they all died. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And they left all that stuff to us who are following hard on their heels. Take this to heart. God wants you to know it. And the assumption is that if you take it to heart and you know it, there will be a change in perspective. And we're going to come to, he has an idea about what that change in perspective is. It's a particular one here. But again, the rest of the context of the scripture, there are other changes in perspective that should come. The one here is not the one that we usually connect to this. We usually hear something like, you have one life to live, so get to work and don't blow it. Don't waste it. Isn't that what we usually hear? And maybe that is what you need to hear. Again, this is just the passage for today. I don't know where all couple hundred of us are coming from. It might be that what you actually most need to hear is stop wasting your one and only precious life in front of the computer game. Stop wasting your one and only precious life on the golf course. In front of the TV. At work. I don't know. Maybe you need to hear that. If, if sloth is your problem, if, if addiction to entertainment is your problem, maybe you need to hear that one. Maybe what God wants to say here is, I've given you one life, lay it to heart, and the application for you is, is of that sort. Don't waste it. But he goes a different way in this passage. And really, this different way is the way that I most need to hear. We'll come to that in a minute, but realize that when he tells you this, he wants you to lay it to heart. And in telling you this, this is God's grace to you. This is him graciously stepping into your life to communicate something to you that might, might, might bless you immensely. It is a gracious thing if He will take this note and sound it clearly in your mind and produce in you sorrow over it, a sobering over it. For by the sadness of face, the heart is made glad. 
That's what he's after for you. He wants you to know this so that you can be glad here and now in this life, live a good life here and on forever and ever. That takes us to the second observation. This picks up the first one and extends it. He presses the reality of death upon us. That's the first observation, essentially. So that we will be wise for our joy. God presses the reality of death upon us. He tries to lay it on our hearts so that we will be wise for our joy. And I mean full joy. Not fleeting, light, crackling of thorns-ish laughter. Full joy. It's implied throughout the whole section by how he has this comparison thing going on. The better Throughout the whole thing, he's laying out for us, telling us what's better. And the implication is he wants you to go toward what's better because that would be better for you. So it's implied throughout, but it's explicit in the verse I've already read. Verse 3, sorrow better because by the sadness of face the heart is made glad. That's what God's after. Go to the house of mourning and wisely sorrow for gladness sake. This is not just to beat you down and put you in your place. It's not. But it is to put you in your place. To put you in your place so as to release you from some other place that is too much for you. To release you from the burden of striving to fill shoes that are too big for you. Frail, finite human that you are. Can you see the gladness that would come into your life if 7, 8, 9, and 10 described you? Can you imagine that? A pure and wise heart. Not corrupted. Not beholden to anyone. Not plagued by guilt. Not in constant struggles with others. Patient humility. Knowing that it's not up to you. Content to wait. At peace with other people and not angry at circumstances or what people have done to you. What you fear from them. Content with what is. That's the end of stress right there. That's rest in the soul. As Ecclesiastes 4 verse 6 says, a verse that fits right in our context. Chapter 4 verse 6, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. You cannot toil hard enough to change the world. You cannot run fast enough to catch the wind. If you ever caught it, you couldn't hold on to it. You can toil and run if you like, but it will only lead to misery and futility. How many windmills do you want to tilt, Don Quixote? I had a chance once in a former church to be a part of a group 
that built a coffin for a dying member of our church. This woman was dying, and she was a founding member of the church. He was in her 50s. was terminally ill and dying, and everybody knew her. And so a group of people, a group of men got together and we worked together to work on the plans and then cut the wood and, and put it together to build the box. Well, a group of women got together to work on the plans and stitch the fabric together to line it, and to decorate it. This group of men included her husband and her son. It was a fascinating trip to the house of mourning. I remember one particular exchange that struck me. I don't remember the exact words, but the man who was sort of like the foreman of this group had just cut the piece of wood that was going to form one end of the box. And as I looked at it, it looked too small to me. And so I asked him something like, are you sure you measured that right? Because it looks kind of narrow. And he held it up to his chest so that it spanned both shoulders to prove his point. He said, we're not that big. 22 inches, give or take a little bit. We're not that big. Lay it to heart. And sit down. And cease striving in this life. Stop trying to fill shoes that belong to your Father. What He has made crooked, you cannot straighten. And conversely, what he has straightened, you cannot make crooked. He prospers. He brings adversity, not us. And he wants to drive that home to you for your joy. How does that work for your joy? It relieves a burden from you, doesn't it? As you step out of those two big shoes that are such a burden as you try to walk with them across the floor. You can't run in those shoes, can you? No. You fall over in them, don't you? Yes. But he relieves you of that burden. And as he steps into him himself, not only do you find a lightning of the load, but you find yourselves in the hand of one who fills those shoes, who upholds the world, who makes everything turn. That is a great thing. What happens in your heart then is a glad-hearted rest and contentment. And he lays these things out to us here so that we'll see them and know them. But as you go to the house of mourning, there's a strange thing that happens. It's sort of non-cognitive. And what I mean by that is that you don't have to think through the steps As you go to the house of mourning, there's something that just causes you to sit. When the the guy held the board up to his chest, I didn't think, oh, the proper stance would be for me to realize how small we really are and that we are mortals and that we all die and here's the coffin. That would be the proper thing for me to think about. I just thought about it. It strikes you. You see it. That's why you go there. That's why you give thought to it. I'm, I'm driving home from this, this time. 
missed the light, stuck at this red. Man, this is a perpetual red light. And did I have to think about, I shouldn't really worry about these things and I should, I should be patient? No. Having been to the house of mourning, there's a difference in you. As this has been laid to heart, there's a difference in you. Say, so I'm going to spend 45 seconds here at this light. So what? I know that's trivial. But that kind of thing, 7, 8, 9, 10, this happens in your heart as a perspective change happens. As you go to the house of mourning and become wise. So it's not just that you think yourself up to this place of glad rest. It just, it comes to you. It's the grace of God driving truth into you as you give your mind to it. It's the end of angst and worry and discord. Cease striving. As you step out of those shoes and He steps in, cease striving and know that He is God. Not you. Him. It can make you glad here as, as this kind of life becomes your lived out experience. But the greatest kind of gladness that, that this can provide for you and, and the kind that we most want is that it opens up, as, as we step aside, as we sit down and cease striving, it opens up room for God to step in and to reveal Himself to you as what He really is. Sovereign and supreme over all things. Holding every detail of every life in His hands. Yours included. Consider His work. He runs everything. Who can thwart Him? And here's where we need the context of the rest of the Bible. Because right at this point, if you read only Ecclesiastes, that's all He's got. That's all He has. He has this, this under the sun, this under heaven. There's a glass ceiling in His world. He knows there is a God. He knows that we all will die. He knows that we will face judgment before this God and that we should fear Him. But there is a, there is a constant bit of... And for those of us who have read the rest, we, we want to say, what about the one who's overcome death? He doesn't know Him. It's not here. But it's here. The greatest gladness that this kind of, of sobering truth in the house of mourning can provide you, the greatest gladness is that it can bring you to the spot of saying, Oh, look at me. Fail and fallen, flower quickly fading, and I am passing away. And look at you in all of your grandeur. Who can rescue me from this body of death? And in that moment, He may speak to you. And you may hear, thanks be to God who has done it in Christ. 
Thanks be to God who has done it in Christ. Who has overcome the grave in Christ. Who has made it so that you can stand before this God who is unthwartable, unopposable, unstoppable, omnipotent. You can stand before Him accepted and pleasing to Him. He has done that in Christ. You see, if this was all there was, this would not produce gladness, it would produce doom. You're quickly passing away and you're going to stand before a God who cannot be stopped. And you're guilty of stepping into His shoes constantly. If that was all there was, there would be doom. But there is more. Why He sent Christ to the earth to go to the cross, to remove from you guilt of usurping God's authority and to deliver to you infinite gladness in God Himself. To atone for your sin, to remove off of you guilt and to bestow on you forgiveness and grace. Christian, He has conquered the grave for you. He has given you real life even today. If you're a Christian, you're alive and you're dying, both at the same time. Your physical body's dying, but you live now and into forever. If you're not a Christian, you can live. You come to Christ, the one who has conquered death. The infinite gladness that can be yours as you go to the house of mourning. It can make you aware of your human frailty and your human fallenness and your need to answer. Your, 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 the reality that you're going to answer to this God who is over all things. And your need for a way to answer to Him. And it can lead you to say, I'm going to cease striving. Know He is God and trust Him. That will provide great gladness of heart for you. Go to the house of mourning. Give up. And trust Him and Him alone to uphold the world and save you. Let me pray. Father, I... I want to ask you, would you please drive into us these truths, lay them to our heart. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to trust you and to not trust ourselves. We are weak and fallen and passing through. Give us grace that we would see that and would trust you and you alone. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 
South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.